Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 90. The Weekly Word Podcast has evolved over the last few months. And over the last few months, I've been sort of trying to figure out what it is I am trying to say with the Weekly Word Podcast. And of course, we go into training details, nutrition, hydration, you know, strategy, preseason, how to prepare for ultra endurance events and all the knowledge and tidbits around that. But I also try to capture um, what it is about ultra endurance that I'm looking to truly share in a bigger picture and, uh, and why I'm doing this. And I think I came across it just the other day as I was sort of formulating some new um, updates to the website and sort of a, not a mission statement, but understanding why it is I do what I do. And I sort of caught it, I think, I believe. And that is, I believe many of you, many of the listeners, and many in our periphery of this ultra-endurance world, endurance world, have a deep-down desire to do an ultra-endurance event, to do an endurance event even, a marathon, a 70.3, an Ironman, a 50-miler, and a longer open water swim or combination of all or an outdoor endurance adventure, something that goes on for days or a, a hundred mile bike ride or a multiple day hundred mile bike rides, whatever the adventure is, but something daunting, something out there on the far reaches of what we believe is possible. And now we can talk a lot about why I believe we have that deep down desire. And many of you have heard that um, in my description of meaning and nature and outdoors and how it polarizes our body and how, you know, we're meant to be in nature, immersed in it and what it does to our psyche and our creativity and to our anxiety and to our patience and to our spirit and to the energy that flows from within us. But I just believe back to the higher level of this, that we have these desires, this curiosity to achieve some ultra endurance events, some endurance events. I know I keep jumping back and forth between the two because they are different, but I think many of us are stuck though in the butt of that. And butt meaning B-U-T. <laughs> um, that being, I would love to do a 50 mile running race, but... I've got a full-time job and I'm very busy with it. I would love to sign up and do a 70.3 or an Ironman, but I have two children and I'm too busy with their commitments. I would love to um, do my first marathon and grow from there into the endurance lifestyle, but I coach Little League or I'm active in my church or have other commitments or the but is a combination of all three. Our lives are busy. We work, we have families, we have social commitments, uh, we have community commitments, and so forth. That's the but. And as I was going through this exercise in my mind, of course, on a long run, I realized that I am here of service to help you, to add value, in turning that but of I can't do it because or but into and. I want to do a 50 mile ultra running race and I have 
two children, or and I have a full-time demanding job, and I'm active in the community. By me coaching you, providing this value, these insights, my experiences, understanding the situation you're in, the difficulties of this, the longevity of this, I am hopefully helping you create the end. And that is truly what my coaching and this podcast and everything that we talk about it in it is about. Helping you to go from but to and. And now the podcast is free. Anybody can listen to it. And I try to put as much advice and free value in there and guidance and tips and um, knowledge and training insights and nutrition and hydration and psychology and mindset and, you know, uh, strength and, and all those components in that. And I will continue to do that. And then there's the premium side, which is coaching, which is individual, which is one-on-one, where we navigate your busy life, where we figure out how to turn the butt into and, how we find the hours, how we schedule through your day, how you can still make your family commitments, your professional commitments, your community commitments, and yet still do an endurance or an ultra endurance event. And that's what the weekly word podcast is truly about. It's that description. It's that. That's what everything I stand for with regards to talking about consciousness and growth and self-care and all that. It all falls under the same category on how to get you any of you curious about ultra endurance and endurance adventures and events to go from, but I can't do it to, and I am doing it alongside this in a healthy, sustainable manner to achieve goals on the far end of what you thought we were capable of. And for us to do it in a healthy and sustainable manner, healthy with regards to injury, healthy with regards to balance, healthy with regards to longevity, that you don't burn bridges along the way, sustainable, right? That's for those of you curious on the ultra endurance and the endurance adventures, that lifestyle, believing that you know you have the potential to do this. You have it deep inside you that you want to find out that you can do it, but you've hesitated over the past years or months or many years because you don't believe or you haven't believed it was possible. Yet here I am, and I would love to be able to help all of you turn that but into an and. And it was somewhat liberating, freeing to come to this conclusion. Now, of course, I can help um, elite athletes get to Kona, win Kona, win a marathon, win a 50-miler, win a 100-miler, win an Ultraman. I've done all that, too. But the bigger picture, the truly area that I truly believe where the value is and my experience is and what I can add is and allowing for me to serve you via experience and hopefully trust and I had value is to help you achieve those goals despite your busy life. You are enrolled in this journey to achieve your ultra endurance outcomes, goals, dreams, 
And I have the opportunity to teach you with that. I'm taking you, hopefully the athlete, as a coached athlete in this case, um, to where you said you wanted to go. Now, we can do that as many of you have written to me in the podcast, from the podcast and taken the tips in there and sort of applied them. Or it's in the premium aspect with regards to my coaching. And of course, as many of you know, in the premium aspect, it's about individualization. It's about communication. It's about figuring out what works best for you and your training cycles and your recovery and your nutrition and your hydration, your nutrition during the day and all the depths and details of that. But that's basic. But the outcome, the bigger picture outcome is the same. Right? I am hoping to take you, the athlete, who has an endurance adventure ahead of them, where you want to achieve what you want to, what outcome you want to get to, what event you want to complete, what adventure you want to take part in. And I help you with that. And that's what the Weekly Word Podcast is. And so from that perspective, yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I really enjoy doing. And it's 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 very realistic to me because it feels great to do it. But it's also another category that I've almost forgotten to talk about. It's also many of you or many on the periphery that I come in contact with or coaching or podcast or around me or at the pool or at races. Those of you that have felt the endurance lifestyle, whether in the past or currently, on how to maintain it, how to stay in balance, how to keep the three-legged stool going, right? And then using this podcast and the insights from it or from the coaching and the individual exchange there and the exchange of making it work and navigating you through it and guiding you through it, right? That's what coaching basically is, teaching and guiding and helping you um, um, get to those outcomes, right? Um, that is also what this is about. Sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there. It happens too. Um, sorry. Is that you have experienced it and you don't want this to just go away. So now it's about longevity. How can I maintain a healthy balance in this sport? Because we all know where this sport goes from endurance and ultra endurance perspective. It burns a lot of time. It puts a lot of tax on family, on personal commitments, on community, on social commitments, in some cases career and personal growth. And, um, you know, personal growth meaning you're growing in your career and, and doing the necessary extra work in order to grow in your career, which is a whole different topic. But anyway, um, so many times that becomes the but. I did an Ironman last year. I did a 50 miler last year. I did a 50K last year. I did a 100 miler last year. But I can't do that anymore. It takes too much time. And again, that's what my goal is, to get you from that but to turn it into an and. So that's the Weekly Word Podcast. <laughs> I hope that helps. I hope... Um, many of you can relate to what I'm talking about and um, hopefully feel that I do genuinely have that um, goal in mind and that's where I look to be of service. So what are we going to talk about this week on the podcast? Well, we've got a variety of things to catch up on. 
Um, nothing too dramatic, but we're going to talk about understanding, layering, and progression when it comes to training, right? Um, there is some um, confusion around that on how I see a lot of athletes jump and want to be more than they currently are and are, are allowing and are not allowing the strength work, the core work, the slow Z2 work, the foundation to be built properly in order to add layers upon that and what progression means. We talk about, I talk more about clarifying, uh, talk more about, I try to clarify more racing recklessly and ex versus executing the plan. There was a fair amount of feedback on that last week um, that it was sort of ambiguous the way I described it. And I make a second attempt, a shorter one, in order to describe that properly on what I mean by that. And then I look to um, talk about how we don't want to look at our race, um, our upcoming race, um, and that we want to compete and what I mean by that is in the case of a first Ironman, how we want to use the bike leg and certain parts of the race quite easy. And um, in order to sort of navigate our way through our first Ironman and that experience and understanding it and sort of um, not setting ourselves up for a 15 mile walk. And then finally, uh, pretty late in the podcast, I answer one email question. And that's how to prepare for a 70-mile unsupported trail run. It's not really unsupported. It's an organized race, but there are no aid stations. And there is no water stations and so on. So you have to bring everything with you, but it is an organized race. And I talk a little bit about that because that was an email question from a listener. And so and I close it out with that. So enjoy the podcast. I will put those time cutoffs, that's a new thing, into the show notes and um, so that you can jump forward to whatever part you want to listen to or you want to go back and hear that piece again. Um, I hope that's helpful. Please let me know if it is, if it isn't. And um, yeah, so enjoy episode 90. The challenge for many athletes is that they want to overlook a progression um, and not want to, but they would like to speed up the progression in order to get to a training platform or a load that they really feel good that they're doing something or fatiguing or increasing speeds or uh, relating the efforts in training or the training um, sessions to their respective, respective races, um, events, adventures. But what I continuously find, and this is Monday going through training plans, is that athletes are missing some of the, the key um, drivers in order to progress them forward. What does that mean? That means that many of my athletes uh, will be able, will, will skip a workout. And they're not skipping because they want to skip it. Life gets in the way or scheduling challenges or sickness or a variety of other things. And so what they're often surprised with is me just pulling that same workout and putting it back in for the coming week. Whether it's core, whether it's strength, whether it's running volume, whether it's cycling and specificity in there, whether it's swimming, 
all that has to be first completed in its respectable respective order before we can move on to the next phase, right? And especially in uh, disciplines or in activities that are not part of our usual output, meaning um, core and strength is a great example of this. Even running volume, where um, if we progress it incorrectly or too quickly, injury likelihoods go way up. And so um, we can't move to the next phase of core strength and stability without having completed this four to six week phase. Because upon the top, on upon the core and strength and stability we're currently doing, for example, right? We can't jump to now including some bounding and strength and weight-based work and um, kettlebells and um, things like that without having core integrity, chassis integrity in order to build more strength upon it. And so back to what I said in the opening sentences of this is that we can't progress past that without completing it because we risk too much. We can't jump past what seems like pretty boring core work without completing it properly because it sets us up so that down the road, when we are doing kettlebell work, when we are doing stretch cord work, when we are integrating a variety of bigger strength exercises, that we're not doing damage to our body, that we're not injuring ourselves because we don't have that integrity built in. Same thing running. We can't just move into a hilly run or hill repeats or bounding um, on hills without having done the proper um, calf and Achilles and ankle flexibility and strengthening work prior. We're shorter hill repeats and sprints and bounding and toes work on um, on 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 uh, grass, right? Um, without doing a rolling hilly run to test our ability to not only handle the uphills but the downhills and the pounding of that. And so there's a lot that goes into this. Not that the coaching is that complicated. I'm just saying that is that goes into it. That. We need to be patient in our build and allow our body to, once again, build layer upon layer upon layer. You've heard it at nauseum um, on this podcast with regards to the heart rate, heart rate with regards to building a foundation in zone two and then building in more a little bit more zone three and then a new level of zone two and so forth. But the same works for our muscles and our structure and our integrity and our core and our back and our hamstrings and all that stuff. It's so important to make sure that we have a rounded out solid foundation so that we then can push a lot more stress upon the body, upon the system, right? And it's the same principle that works in a variety of things, whether that's um, even in nutrition, even in mindset, even in, well, those two. Um, because we need to create a foundation, a platform from which we go from, you know, cleaning up our diet before we um, introduce a new approach, right? Especially from a nutrition and a diet standpoint, diet's the wrong word, nutrition approach standpoint, right? Why do something new? Why do something drastic? Why change anything 
if we don't first clean up so that we can monitor what is having effect on our body so that we can narrow down what is working, what makes us feel energetic, what makes us feel sluggish, what makes our stomach upset, what makes us um, you know, tired, things like that. So that, again, we want to have a clear platform to start from and then gradually build upon that. And the same thing with um, whether it's sleep or of any anything else, right? So keep that in mind. All this, especially as my athletes, we're heading in a direction. And it might be a little bit unclear, and, and feel free to ask me, of course. Um, but we don't want to skip one phase, one micro phase in the in the bigger phase, in order to just get somewhere thinking, oh, well, that's the same. Trust me. Um, Doing one minute um, of each position in three-limb front bridge is way harder <laughs> than 15 seconds of each, right? And when we start thinking about that and I jump you too quickly, then you're just not um, successful at um, doing the exercise or the intervals. And then it's just compromising form, integrity, um, fundamentals, technique, things like that. And then we might as well not be doing it right? It's the same. I find it quite often with athletes that um, keep a, a steady core and stability and strength system going all year round. Well, you know, we need to take that take that off the table for a couple of weeks, a month or two. Why? And you might think, well, well, my core will fall, my integrity will fall apart. No, we need to give the body a rest from it and then maybe reintroduce some slower things, um, some slower, um, slowly introduce some newer things so that we see if the body is responding to it, if it's um, having an effect, how it impacts our running and cycling and swimming. And, um, you know, maybe a couple of the exercises are no longer necessary. The integrity is strong enough there and we, we highlight some other areas or we make it more challenging, or use a different muscle group that stimulates it differently, right? Staying the same is a very challenging um, um, place to be because you can't monitor your improvement as much, and change is what really helps the body. You know, mixing things up, getting out of our comfort zone, having the body adapt and try to figure out something new, that's when it's at its best. Right? That's the same thing what we talk about on this podcast all the time. Our curiosity, our creativity, our fear drives us to, to pay attention, to, to be alert. Right? And the same thing in this context. You know, change and doing things differently makes us more sensitive and more aware and alert to what we're doing and how it works. And the body loves trying to adapt. That's how it works best. Right? From an evolutionary standpoint, it's always looking for adaptations and how to become efficient. Well, if we're always doing the same thing, it will get lazy. It will not want to participate in finding adaptations, in finding efficiencies, in getting better, stronger, faster. We evolve, and that's the beautiful thing from a cellular structure, from a muscular structure, from a gut and body structure, from a mind structure, from a whole organism structure. 
evolving means changes and adaptations and growing and getting better. And then more changes evolving, great adaptations, better, smarter, stronger, faster, things like that, right? So keep that in mind. Be patient with your growth. Be patient with your um training progressions because they're all necessary and if you're doing them on your own don't don't jump ahead too quickly it's tempting trust me i i see the same thing when i work through plans or write plans um for myself and i'm testing things for my athletes and i'm taking in concepts i i i find the same thing i look ahead where i think oh that would be challenging but first i need to do these exercises correctly. First, I need to see how this feels fully adapted and strong. Like for example, the core work that most of my athletes are doing, I've done that. And so now I start integrating other things into that core work to see how my body will respond with that to then pass on to my athletes. Whether it's the jump rope, whether it's the kettlebell swings, whether it's the um, loaded uh, Russian twist, things like that. And then once that adaptation happens, now I'm not just running easy after core instability or cycling easy. Now let's add some work. Now let's add some stress in the post-core instability and strength work to also tie the two pieces together, integrate them into one organism, one workout better. And now we're talking, you know, 45, 60 minutes of core stability and strength, plus another 35 to 45, even up to 60 minutes of um, the discipline, the sport that we're working on. You put that into one piece of a two-hour load like that, asking your body to apply different uh, parts of the the chassis of the core of muscle groups, and then also keeping the mind engaged well enough for an hour and a half, two hours of form, integrity, footwork, technique, um, whether it's swimming and biking as well with regards to posture and spin and reach and so forth. So it becomes an all-inclusive quality day that might not be a long day, but because of the strength, for example, it's fatiguing us differently so that when you start running, cycling, or swimming beyond the strength work, you're already fatigued as if you're two hours in. Now the muscle group that we addressed, the, 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 yeah, the strength component that we addressed is now tired enough that clean, light, focused, fundamentally sound work is really effective. We don't need to do it long. 30 minutes is plenty. And so, yeah. That's if you if you draw that string all way out and look at all right, I am doing some basic work now, but it is built upon a layer that's coming and another layer and another layer, and that's where we're going. So understand that don't skip or think it's too easy yet. I have rarely in my years of coaching had athletes that at the end of the season or at the end of a long progression or going into their A race have ever <laughs> complained that my training was too easy. Well, I knew that the racing recklessly and executing the plan would create some confusion from the last podcast, episode 89. So let me clarify it or distinguish the two more clearly. As I talked about last week, we have racing recklessly, 
which means throwing caution to the wind a few times, testing your limits, getting outside of your boundaries, and seeing what you're capable of, while still being able to um, retreat to your plan. And so what's important there on understanding racing recklessly is that you know that there's a, a pace, an effort, a speed I can fall back to without risking the rest of my day. That means a surge while swimming, but knowing that if that surge is too much or not worth it or is not yielding any results, then you can still fall back to basically the same pace you were swimming before and still maintain your day, your execution. On the bike, that means a surge in cycling watts or heart rate, where you, let's say you're riding, for example, arbitrary number, 200 watts, and the road is open, the head, there is no headwind, it's good conditions, you're hydrated, you're fueled, you're executing your plan as written out, as prepared for, but you also know that you're going to say, all right, I'm going to give this about, let's say, two 30-minute efforts at 220 watts or 225 watts with a 10-minute or 5-minute easy stretch in between where I'll fuel up and hydrate again. Now, again, if you, can, if you do the first one, realize it's not, it's costing you, you're back to pedaling squares, it's not very efficient, you're uncomfortable at it, you're getting up out of your saddle, you're not arrow, things like that. The reason you can do that is because you're confident in your ability to fall back to 200 watts again. Um, and the same thing running. If you're running 7.30 pace or 8-minute miles and you want to speed up or test your limits to 7.30, 7.15s, you do that knowing that you can fall back to the old pace, whatever you were holding, 8s. Now, that's still very controlled. That's not reckless. But what happens is when we race recklessly, when we throw caution to the wind, when we get outside of our head and we're willing to take the emotion out of it and move forward in a positive way and have confidence and strength and an aha moment and ability and uh, encouragement, then sometimes that becomes the new normal. And until we do that, until we find out what we're capable of, until we throw caution to the wind, until we just have fun, racing recklessly sometimes works out. That ties into the last um, podcast as well, where I say we have those races where we deliberately try to blow up. We have those races where we want to completely race recklessly, that is executing the plan. That is racing on feel and blindly going into it with an effort level and an intent to not think about the result, not think about the pace, not think about the average wattage, not think about how we execute it, but to go back to racing recklessly and with, with blinders on like many of us did in our first races, in our first 70.3, in our first half marathon, in our first marathon, in our first triathlon, in our first bigger open water swim, where because you didn't know any better, you raced recklessly, you raced fearless. And as the miles kept ticking on, 
you realize, uh-oh, this is longer than I thought, but you're already so far into it and your willingness to suffer is so different because you don't know what the next level of suffering is, you raced recklessly. You probably didn't eat or drink properly. You probably didn't have the proper fueling. You probably didn't pace early in the race properly and conserve. No, you just went into it and were fearless. You weren't all out from the first, um, from the gun, but you raced recklessly. You raced without fear. You raced by throwing the chips on the line and just going for it. Again, not all out, but stronger or further into the pain cave, into um, what is unfamiliar to you than you probably do these days. Again, because in the mind, the mind remembers and knows what it felt like blowing up or when it is that painful or when your lungs are burning and you want to slow down or the lactate accumulation in the muscles becomes so um, overloaded that the muscles don't expand and contract properly and you have dead legs, right? Or also the um, emotional aspect of getting passed by people that you passed earlier and going backwards in the age group or in your race or versus your peers or the people in the world, in the world, on that race day, meaning uh, around you, in your sphere, I should say, in in the mileage that you were racing, because we all seem to race around the same people from from gun to finish line. Um, it doesn't dramatically change. Those things sort themselves out pretty remarkably. But going backwards, those are the things we have in our mind. So there's that emotional connection, there's that physical connection. And you know, we try to avoid that. The body will fight you on that. And therefore, racing recklessly, we have to overcome that bridge, overcome that fear, walk through that door um, numerous times in order to turn that switch off in the brain that's protecting us from that physical and emotional duress right? It's not a question of a central governor, but it is a governor in there that is protecting us or not wanting us to go into that type of um, pain, into that type of suffering, and into that type of emotional hurt of going backwards or lacking, cracking our confidence. So that's racing recklessly. Now, on the other end of that spectrum is executing the plan. All these things, both of them, tie into if you are good enough in executing the plan, you also want to have races where you race recklessly. We know then, therefore, you as athlete, I as coach, know you can execute a plan very well. And what I was talking about last week is I have athletes, and I've seen many athletes over the years. Man, I really need to... Um, grease or oil my office chair here. Um, I've seen many athletes over the years who execute the plan almost robotically, right? And while that is nice to coach that and knowing that the person will execute the plan to a T, it's also very, um, it can mess with motivation and it can mess with the excitement, the joy, the fun, the curiosity of the event. Because of course, if you're going to execute the plan, do it really well, and there aren't a lot of questions in it, 
then I know and you know basically what the outcome will be of a race or of an event. But not always, most of us aren't in it for that reason. We want to experience that joy, that excitement, that curiosity, that overcoming and blowing past what we um think we are capable of not as a question of blowing that far past it but you know what i mean where it's like wow i risked it a risked it a few times and look what i was able to achieve the front end of what i thought so executing the plan is nice but i also want you as athletes to risk something and to race right? I've talked in past podcasts about athletes that I call racers, right? We have a plan, we have a vision for the day, we think we know how it's going to unfold. And then the racers somehow do the entire race at a higher level. Still, they're executing the basic structure, the skeleton of the plan. And when I look at the race afterwards, or I go over the plan with them, it's like, wow, yeah, you did execute all of it, but you did it all better, faster, stronger throughout than you show in training, than you do usually. That's what I'm talking about. There's flexibility in executing the plan. There's flexibility in your day. And like I was saying in the last podcast, understanding that after the race, if an athlete comes to me and said, here was the plan, and here I saw a few spots that I was like, you know what? F it. I'm just going to have some fun and see what happens here. Knowing... Chris, that I was still able to, um, I felt good enough that I knew I could still fall back to executing the original effort level, wattage, heart rate, and so forth to have that day. And the other thing about understanding about racing, um, executing the plan and racing recklessly is we know this prior, right? If you're an athlete who has struggled with um, achieving the outcomes that you see in workouts that you're, you should be able to um, achieve or that I think you can achieve, well, then it's about executing the plan, right? But if you continuously are very good in workouts and in races on executing the plan and achieving the outcomes based off the training numbers and based off of your um, desired outcomes, goals, intentions that you set for your races, well then, yeah, then we'll want to race recklessly. So it's not one or the other. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a healthy mix of which races we do this, within which races, what your outcomes personally are, how invested you are in this result, in this outcome. Are you somebody who has typically um, executed the plan, where we are in the season, what you're looking to do, your confidence in your abilities, as well as your confidence to not be shaken by having a blow-up race, right? So it should be a gray area, right? Um, athletic achievement is not about, it's not black and white. Same as a training plan doesn't guarantee you a certain time. Same as a training plan doesn't guarantee you a certain success. It's gray, right? It's a gradual process. And so is racing. We have a skeleton, an execution of, execu we want to execute a plan, an execution, excuse me. Um, we want to execute a plan, and that gives us in our mind the structure of where we need to be for the day, 
right? But within that structure, within that framework, there's freedoms and liberties to, to, to throw caution to the wind, to push a little harder, to miss um, certain numbers or so forth. It is an endurance event. There's a lot of time and real estate and emotion and physical stress that happens during an endurance day, eight, nine, 10, 20, 30 hours of it. So yes, the framework is in place, but racing recklessly is part of your growth and part of your understanding of what you're capable of and breaking out of that mold, um, doing something completely different. Um, not completely, but doing something different where you push beyond the framework that you're usually working in and you're, you're able to mold almost into a new framework. You're willing to work with bigger real estate. You have the old house and a good framework and sure, you can be, do really good there. But now you might want to move into or, or thinking about growing into a bigger house with a bigger framework and different um, real estate and structures about it and more space to spread out and be the athlete that you have grown to become. So that hopefully helps explain the difference between racing recklessly and executing the plan. I know there should and there is some vagueness to it. And there is some ambiguity to it. That's because everybody has a different path on how they're looking to achieve their goals, their outcomes, their growth, but also from where they're coming from their past successes, how they've executed the plan, what their limiters are, how they want to achieve their future goals. Maybe for some athletes, we really need to work on executing a plan because they blow up, right? And so as we execute better plans, because they've been racing <laughs> recklessly, right? <laughs> in the past and blowing up at, you know, in an Ironman at mile 12 or 13 or 14, right? So there we need to shift to executing more of the plan to the framework to the structure and let's stay within the boundaries. And then there's those who execute flawlessly and are like, I've gone, you know, 10, between 1020 and 1040 in six Ironmans. Now, well, guess what there that we know that you can execute that plan, we know that you can execute the Ironman between 1020 and 1040. How are we gonna we got to race recklessly, we got to throw caution to the wind, we got to dare greatly at times in order to have that breakthrough performance to break on through to the other side, like I like to quote the doors all the time. So that's what I mean by racing recklessly versus executing the plan. I received an email from one of my athletes regarding Ironman pacing. And it's one I come across quite often. And it is not the frustrating is too negative of a word. But um, well, I don't know what the word would probably be. But the question is, what is too hard for me, he asks. I will have to keep a certain wattage in mind. When I'm on the course, there are plenty of people to pass and I'll just keep chasing the next person if I don't put a cap on the tap power. And so this right there brings me to the whole ego aspect of racing your first Ironman. And until you actually know what you're going to do on the far end of your first Ironman and not walk 15 miles, we have to approach this as 
I am just going to get through the bike in order to see what it's like to run a marathon off of a 112 mile bike. And to get caught up in somebody else dictating our outcome and our race and our day and our success with regards to our first Ironman and with regards to our emotions and how we want it to unfold and how we envisioned it and how we trained for it and what it means to us. When we're racing other people, chasing other people, trying to pass other people, getting caught up in a race, we're throwing that all out the window. We are turning the day that was supposed to be our day into somebody else's day. And those others racing there don't have your best interest in mind. They have their own best interest in mind. And by you getting caught up in racing them, you are now compromising what could have been your day. Your first Ironman and many Ironmans, in general, ultra-endurance races when it comes to 50Ks, 50 miles, 100 miles, and other ultra-endurance distances in different disciplines, 10K swim, whatever, right? Because some of those 10K swims are huge, seven, 800 people at a time, waves, of course. But again, other people being on the course, right? And the mindset is almost, what are all these people doing here at my race, the one I've trained for, the one I have a strategy for, and executing the plan, and the way I envision my day? That's almost how you want to look at it. Like, oh, cool. All right. Well, I'm not going to be that way. I'm just going to do my own thing. Enjoy your day. I'm happy to share this course with you, but I am not going to let you take my day away. And you can do that in almost any event or race. Now, shorter races, there's a component of racing, of course, and that becomes a different conversation. But that's not what we're in right now. What we're in and talking about is how do you successfully get through your first Ironman, experience it, enjoy it, live it, love it, take it all in without compromising your day, right? Without letting the day slip away from you because of actions of others, which you then react to. And so this whole question with regards to what is too hard for me, well, what is too hard for me is anything that is harder than comfortable, right? I can't give you a wattage or a heart rate. It's your first Ironman. We don't know how to respond. I can give you a range. I can give you an idea. I can give you a hard ceiling, but you still need to have the patience, the discipline, the self-control to not get caught up in racing, right? Way back in early on in the podcast, when I just started about um, talking about ultra endurance events, I said, managing your impulses long enough to avoid getting in your own way. That's exactly what this is. In an Ironman on the bike leg, Managing your impulses long enough, in this case, this guy's impulses, and I get it. I'm, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to be competitive. I'm just saying observe the first one. Allow it to unfold, right? Enjoy your day. Don't get competitive and risk walking 15 miles and then having a negative experiences, uh, experience and judging yourself by not having done it the way you wanted to and then the experience and the negativity and the guilt you feel from that. Because I've been there, we've all been there, when we know, man, I probably biked too hard and now I'm walking. It feels awful. And the judgment that happens with that and the negative emotions, all not necessary. Go easy enough. 
right? Managing your impulses, in this case, to race others, catch others, pass others long enough to avoid getting in your own way. In your own way is that self-talk where you afterwards go, oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that, but I did it anyway, or I got caught up in the moment. No, don't get caught in there. Check that ego. Ask yourself at all times when you get caught up in this situation, what do others racing have to do with my race? Why, why am I letting them influence my race? Why am I letting them take my day away from me? How do they help your outcome? None of those competitors are helping your outcome. Even the drafting concept on the swim, that's not always in your best intention. They're not helping your outcome. You don't know if they're swimming crooked, too easy, too fast. Instead of controlling yourself early on when what will be 10, 11, 12 more hours, 13 more hours, it's your first by Ironman. If you bike too easy, it's something we can always correct on the run. That's the beauty of endurance events. The fact that you have plenty of real estate to make up what was too easy. But a tick too hard on the bike and you'll be walking for 15 miles, right? So again, use the distance and your training and your knowledge and your growth in this over the last few months to your advantage. Just think of it. Is there a negative outcome from this if I bike too easy? Well, let's walk through that. If I bike too easy, I have a marathon, a marathon left to run to make up that time. And usually the delta between biking too easy and an Ironman for most is the difference of maybe 20 minutes. Maybe. 20 minutes. Most of the time, what their perception of too easy is 10 or 12 minutes. 12 minutes slower feels like slogging along. 12 minutes faster feels like ugh, a tick too hard, right? I want you to go 20 minutes slower, that easy, that controlled, that paying attention to fluids, that paying attention to an, an nutrition, that in control, in prep for a marathon. Until you've done it, until you've experienced it, it's a pretty serious feeling. And trust me, very rarely do people go into their first Ironman undertrained with that sort of racing recklessly what I talked about before. You can't do it. You blow up, right? And then it's a negative experience anyway. So that works for a five, six hour event, not for a 12, 13, 14, 15 hour event, right? And usually those that are going faster in their first Ironman already have an ability with pacing and willpower from other sports and other experiences that they have the, the way they can master themselves through the course. That's a different conversation. But big picture is this is your first Ironman. And having gone too easy, 20 minutes slower on the bike. Now we're sitting on 20 minutes. You get out of T2 and go, man, well, not yet. You don't usually go, man, I wish I had those 20 minutes back. You do that after the race. But now you're 20 minutes slower, 15 to 20 minutes slower, let's say. And now you, you get to run feeling good. And no, even biking a 112 miles on a bike and, um, in an Ironman, excuse me, easy is still fatiguing. You don't feel fresh and ready to bound around and run a PR on a marathon. No. 
but you feel better when you go easier in order to manage your fatigue longer, to maintain stride longer, to maintain focus and cognitive ability longer, to maintain posture and turnover and strategy longer. So now you get off your 20 minutes slower, and guess what? Now you can run in, in your first marathon um, often in an Ironman instead of running, let's say, 18 or 20 miles, pretty, um, uh, pretty okay, and sort of slogging your way through 16, uh, excuse me, running, you can instead of running, let's say, 16 ish miles in your first Ironman, truly running, and then walking the aid stations and walking here and there, and then re engaging when running. Often, the sort of the average is that in their first Ironman, people end up walking about eight ish miles, eight to 10 ish miles and running truly 16 ish, 18 ish miles. But now you're feeling really good. And you can actually run 22, 23 miles, right? Or maybe you don't have to walk the eight stations, you do that, right? Four miles more of running versus walking four times six minutes is 24 minutes. That's the difference usually between a slow shuffle jog and a walking mile. Now, boom, you made it up right there. Or 20 aid stations times uh, a jog times walking and stopping, that's 20, 30 minutes right there. Now, usually biking too hard, 20 minutes faster, means you're walking 12, 13, 14 of those miles. You see where the time is slipping away here? So that's the one aspect. The other aspect of biking too easy and having a solid run is that we've talked about this a zillion times before on the podcast is that you have the ability to go back and say, okay, I can probably pick it up a tick on the bike without compromising that run, right? But at least you know what you're running and what you're capable of running, right? And the same thing is in, in, in ultra runs, or any type of ultra event, by taking the middle third, or the first two thirds pretty conservatively and having real estate available to still blow it out, you know, not sprint, but sort of pick up the pace and pass people like they're standing still since most go slower on the last third, most are walking on the last third of a 50k 50 miler 100 miler Ironman. So your ability to actually run, your ability to have energy, your ability to shuffle through it and not slow down, that's success. Ultra endurance success, as you've heard me talk about on this podcast before, is best suited for the person who slows down the least. Your ability to do well in this versus your peers, versus age group, versus anybody is you slow down less than others. And how do you slow down less than others? You start easier so that you can either speed up, very rarely, almost impossible to do, or stay the same pace. You're staying the same pace. What felt like too easy early on will be flying past people late in a race. And the same thing in an Ironman on the marathon, right? We have real estate to make up for going too easy early on. It's incredibly liberating and relaxing to race that way. Like I got plenty of time to pick it up right now. I'm just going to go steady a little bit faster than easy, but a little bit slower than I usually would want to go. I'm just going to go right here on the upper side of easy, steady, steady energy. Or 
you can choose to go faster in the next Ironman. If your growth is in the Ironman event, then you you know you can always up the biking ability, speed, fitness, um, strength. But knowing what you can run is, as we've talked about a few times on this podcast, is a critical ability in eventually racing an Ironman for a result, eventually moving to the top of your age group. You must know what you're capable of running and have that number in your mind so that you can start doing some serious math of what kind of Ironman athlete you are. But it all starts with understanding that you can't go too easy on the bike. Well, you can go too easy, but that's still fatiguing. So there's a point where it's like, well, I'm going this easy. It's creating fatigue anyway, so I don't want to go that easy. If a little bit faster, a little bit more effort equals basically the same level of fatigue after 112 miles. I mean, there's so many nuances here that you want. You can go through and work through and train through. But until you put that first line in the sand of your first Ironman, you don't have that opportunity. So stay focused, execute your plan, know that you have real estate available in your endurance event, you know, and go from there. Use the course to your advantage. If there's loops, right, divide them up so that you use pretty much equal energy throughout. If there's loops on the run, right, start controlled and you can sort of pick it up on loops two and three or loop two versus loop one. And nobody ever afterwards, after an Ironman, especially because it's such a measured distance, 26.2 in a marathon, nobody ever, ever has a big complaint after an Ironman when they do their uh, their best marathon or a really fast marathon, if it's your first, um, and had an okay bike. Everybody's always happy if they've run a fast marathon. I've never seen anybody be um, disappointed in their race. Now, of course, they might go, well, man, I ran really fast on that marathon. I felt great. It's probably because I biked really easy. So then we start working with that equation. That's fine. But we've got something to work with. Knowing that you're capable of running that marathon? Sweet. Let's go. That's fun. Now we up the front end with a swim and a bike. But you, I saw after you know a 112-mile bike and a 2.4-mile swim, you were still, even if it was easy, able to run that marathon? That's awesome. Now let's get after it. Now let's have some fun with the sport. Now let's change up the training. Now let's progress you so that we maintain that marathon and now just bring up the front end. And now, not slowing down on the marathon, whew, things are getting fun, right? But I mean, it works at the front of the race, of the sport, at the top pinnacle. Patrick Lang, knowing he can run a 239 to 242, the last three Ironmans in Kona, he's run 239 or 240 or 241. Like, that's pretty freaking awesome. And look what he's done on the bike every year gotten a little bit faster. (laughs) I'm not making this up. It works. But he had to know that he could run a 239, a 240 on the back end, which he did. Was he capable that first year of riding faster? I'm sure he was. But he wanted to lay down a marathon time that he can relate to. And so, yes, he's given up a minute or two but he's worked his way up further and further and further in the bike versus the field. And he still has that ace in the hole sitting on the back end. And this works the same way in the age group. 
Now, when you're at the front of the age group, then some strategy may come into play that you have to do some surges, but we'll cross that bridge. That's a good problem to have. We'll figure that out once you get there. But until then, in your first Ironman, take it chill. Managing your impulses long enough to avoid getting in your way, own way. Right? All righty. Okay, let's dive into some email questions uh, this week. I still have a few, about eight left open here in my folder with episode questions. And I know there's episodes or weekly word podcast episodes where I work through a variety of email questions, maybe three or four in a row. And then others, I just sort of like to address uh, things I've observed and current trends and um things on my mind that I see in my own training, in athletes training, and general questions that come up. So there's no structure or format around this. It's just that sometimes it's good to mix it up and have different formats here. So this question comes from somebody, he lives in New Jersey, um, East Coast guy, and uh, let me work through these, this email. Um, there's some personal stuff in there, but um, I am going to dive right into the question. Where is it? <laughs> it's a pretty long email. Um, he's um, His family is actually more into cycling or his background is more into cycling, but um, he is running because he has more time to get effective training in running, which is actually an, on a side note for many of you, as you might know. Running is an incredibly efficient way to build endurance and connect with an ultra endurance community and mindset and physiology and space. Um, a two to three to four hour run is easier to come by and build up to, uh, whereas a two to three to four hour bike ride is sort of an average uh, weekend bike ride. It doesn't really um, have the same endurance and physiological effects, of course, as a two to three to four hour run. So this is quite common that um, athletes choose to do ultra running over, um, whether it's triathlon, where the biggest time suck in the training is cycling or other cycling events. I mean, cycling is awesome from a perspective of getting out there, getting real estate, um, uh, achieving or reaching real estate that you usually don't get to. I mean, a long mountain bike ride, a long gravel ride, a long road bike ride takes you into neighborhoods, areas, counties, um, environments that you often never get a chance to get to or reach via car or even, of course, um, running. So there is something very special about it. But again, that's it's very time consuming to prepare for, you know, an ultra endurance bike ride, which is usually over many days, or um, let's say a randonnée where you're going through the night and choosing certain sleep spots and not even sleep spots, you might just be riding right through and um, endurance cycling is a whole different animal um, because of being on a bike, because of being on roads, because of higher speeds, because of complexity of distances, because of a variety of factors. So anyway, back to the question. <laughs> um, as I'm more family and career oriented than my father, who was a cyclist, and nowhere near as serious, I found it I can fit my running into my schedule easier than going for bike rides. 
hence why I run more than bike as a family as a family tradition. I do not have the time and or money to race compete in more than one or two races a year. I loved racing in the 50 mile ultra earlier this year. Um, he did Rock the Ridge 50, which is uh, which was a fun race, and I'm curious if um, he was one of the finishers because they um, stopped that race um, due to bad weather and plummeting temperatures. So it looks like it. It looks like he has a finishing time. I'm not sure if it says last year being he raced in 2017 or 2018. Anyway, um, and found a 70-mile ultra with the same within the same area, Mountain Ridge. So, however... This 70-miler is unsupported and 20 miles longer than the 50-miler. How much more training is involved in a 70 compared to a 50-miler? As you can see from above, I'm sensitive to the three-legged stool and keeping them balanced. Plus, how much more difficult will it be to race um, as the race is unsupported? I will need to carry all my own food, water purification system, clothing, etc. for the entire 70 miles as there are no dropbacks. All right. Um, that being said, I love a race with logistics, and that is why I enjoy the tries and ultras. Just thinking about the above race, I've envisioned myself on the course, proper equipment to use. Okay, that's extraneous information. Um so 70 miles. So going by um, the information you have shared with me, it took you uh, just under 10 hours to do the 50 miler. So if you project that out and slow down a little bit, um, the remain so that's uh, approximately so 50 miles in 10 hours, right? Two hours for every 10 miles. So an additional 20 miles means you are out there for um, another four hours, right? Um, to, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, four hours, um, if you maintain the same pace. So 14 hours approximately because you're unsupported, going longer, and, um, you know, maybe the terrain for the extra 20 makes it a little bit more challenging. Instead of 14, you can consider maybe... 15 or 16. So let's round up and consider this a 16-hour event. That's how I would go by the, the math first. So um, I am preparing mentally for a 16-hour race. Now, um, given that it's a 16-hour race or a 70-mile ultra, and it is somewhat organized in the form of that there will be a start time, <laughs> um, I am assuming you will be starting early in the morning when it is still dark and then running with a headlamp into light. So let's say you start at 5 a.m. So 16 hours puts you into 9 p.m.-ish range, right? Uh, uh, yeah, 9 p.m.-ish range for being finished. So basically, this is an all-day run. And the reason I bring this up is that from a logistics standpoint, this is what you want to start going backwards from. So now we're talking 16 hours, starting around 5, finishing around 9. So most of it, since it's summertime, will be in daylight. So you're talking headlamp maybe for 1 to 2 hours of this. If things go wrong, 
two to three hours of this. Maybe you're finishing at 10 and it gets dark at eight, let's say, right? So headlamp wise, we're okay. Um, that's easily covered with just a headlamp that you can put in your pack um, and carry with you. Now you're thinking about, I need uh, fuel for 16 hours. Something also that can be done logistically with regards to your pack and unsupported, you know, you have to start thinking about how many calories you need for a 16 hour event, um, have some extra, and of course fluids with regards to what you already said, a water purification system, yeah. Um, but again, you can carry a lot of fluids um, on your own. And uh, again, if the pacing and the approach is properly done, you can, you can get through a lot of this. But yes, the purification system is key. So um, that's a logistics and a, um, a fueling question. If you need typically 250 calories per hour, you know, you're getting ready for something that therefore is, you know, 16 hours. That means uh, probably about 4,000 to 5,000 calories. So how do I get 4,000 calories in my pack as well as on me? All right, so that's the next question. Um, and again, I don't think I, you, you're looking for me to answer all these questions, but more um, how to prepare for it. So I'm going backwards on how I would prepare for it, whether it's for me or one of my athletes, and then go into how I would physically in my training prepare for it. So now I'm preparing for carrying my headlamp, my fueling, some fluids, which is usually in my hands, um, and maybe a backup in my pack in case I don't know where the next stream is that I have enough for a couple hours. Um, so now that's in my pack. Now you also talk about clothes, um, maybe shedding some in the morning, although in the summer in New Jersey or on the East Coast, it doesn't get that cold at night, nor does it get that cold early in the morning. So you probably can get by with a, a very thin shell windbreaker. So now our pack is starting to come together and what kind of weight we're dealing with. And so now you can see where I'm going with this. What kind of weight do I need to prepare to run, jog, hike, um, move across real estate for 16 hours? Well, if you put that all together and you determine that's a good <sighs> 10 pounds, whatever that is, 12 pounds, maybe even a little bit more because you want to make it as comfortable and steady as possible. So you want to have extra stuff with you, you know, phone, backup charger, um, uh, 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 sanitary wipes, um, biodegradable, please. Um, little things like that where you sort of have a variety of things that you're pretty self-sufficient out there. Um, I quite enjoy doing that when on my long runs because in my pack when i am pretty self-sufficient for most of the day and i can figure out water and i know food stops in my case with regards to trail running um, with towns i'll run to or um, places i'll pass where i can get food or even how much food i have on me it takes a lot of e uh, takes a lot of stress or um, concern off my shoulders for lack of a better description um, that uh, you know, you can get lost. You can take an, a different path. 
You can veer off onto a detour because you're curious about it. And you are self-supported with enough fuel and hydration and communication and backup stuff in your pack that you feel good about going on an adventure. Um, and no, it's not some crazy adventure, but for, for me, definitely there's times running here in Marin County and Mount Tam and the coast and Stinson Beach and Point Reyes um, National Seashore that's all connected to my backyard is uh, that there are many trails and turns and corners that I would love to just venture off into and turn off to. Now, of course, that always ties into how I'm feeling and as many of you know, as ultra runners, it's not that you always feel that great when you're three, four hours out there and you still have to run home. Um, so you don't, rarely do you venture off your planned path. But again, knowing that you have most of the things with you and you're independent of um, needing help or needing fuel or needing hydration is um, put your mind at ease, definitely. But anyway, so that's how I would start thinking about preparing for this event and doing a run or two a week with regards to that type of weight, um, building up my mileage, hiking as well as easy running with extra weight, um, getting myself used to um, what the pacing will become once uh, I'm using water filtration systems because that, those, that time adds up with the amount of time you need to stop and use your purification um, in order to drink from um, uh, clean water, um, as well as the stops with regards to fueling and um, getting in uh, some, some serious calories. Oftentimes, when we're self-supported, we take those stops longer um, because the feeling of a race goes away and more the steadiness of just moving forward um, takes over. And many of you might have experienced this. When you're out training for an ultra or a long day or a long bike ride or anything, the urgency to get from point A to B is dramatically reduced. So we might sit and eat something. We might stop on our bike and get off and sit and eat or drink or take in a view and stuff like that. Because again, this is um, more, in, in this case, it's unsupported, but on training days, the same thing. It's more, it's not the race, there's no time, there's no urgency, and that little um, switch in our mind that it's not an, or a, a race where you're competing and there's a clock going is incredibly powerful. So even in unsupported events, you, you'll notice that edge is slightly off or lower. Not gone because there is still a clock, but <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's still part of it. So all that is what I would prep for. And then, you know, as I've talked about, whether you're getting ready for a 50 miler or a 70 miler, in this case, almost 100, uh, a little bit more than 100K um, or a 100 miler, your training beyond 40-ish miles is very, very, very rare or limited. It's more about stacking miles, right? I'm a big believer in, for something like a, a 70 miler of saying, okay, in the next three days, I've, I've built up my fitness and I'm, oh, I feel like I'm very fit and ready to go. So what I'm gonna do is simulate the mileage over a 36 hour period or over a, you know, a 48 hour period. 
And so you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before where I would say, let's say on a Friday afternoon, I would run and I maybe I would even go to this park and, and prepare for it on my own um, and go, you know, 15 miles on Friday afternoon, get a um, go to sleep, <clears throat> camp or something like that. Again, make it a little bit more difficult, a little bit more challenging, sleeping on the ground and a tent and so forth. You have your car or your, your vehicle. Um, then the next morning, wake up and run, you know, 20. Now, in a matter of 12 hours, you've done, you know, close to 35 miles. And then that afternoon, run another 15 or something like that, or 20. So with a little bit of a break, replenishment, refueling, as I've talked about before, not enough time to truly recover, but enough time to make your running more effective and compacting that volume um, with a decent, healthy, preventing injury type of recovery. So um, in a matter of, let's say you depart at three o'clock on Friday and by uh, 6 p.m. on Saturday, <clears throat> you've done 15, 15, and 20. So you've gone 50-ish miles, maybe even a bit more. Maybe you break that up differently, like 18, 25, uh, 17. You know, now you've done uh, 55 miles. That's pretty close. Um, in a matter of 20, uh, 20, uh, 27 hours, right? That's amazing. And then you go home, get a good night's sleep, and maybe do on uh, Sunday a 10-miler where you turn over the legs a little bit faster. You build some build miles, two times three miles of building leg speed and effort in there. Something like that. So now, in a matter of 27 hours, you got in 50 to 55 miles. So you really tested your gear, your equipment, your fitness, and all that, your mindset, and you were on the course and logistics. And then at home, you do another 10. So now you've done 65 miles and now add another 24, right? In 48 hours, basically, that's awesome. Then you're ready. And those are the things. And of course, you want to do it with the weight um, that you plan to race in and all your gear. And you want to build up that tolerance. Um, I use well, weight vests so, uh, a lot with my athletes when they're getting ready for unsupported or super long runs. For example, you know, a uh, hundred milers in the, in the Rockies and like, let's say Leadville or hard rock and stuff like that. I definitely have athletes do, um, some of their runs and you got to be very careful with this, with extra weight. Um, we build that up very gradually, um, because too much weight can quickly increase the likelihood of injury, um, ankles, joints, knees, hamstrings, lower back. So we're talking an extra two to four pounds, right? Um, that they can put in their um, um, their packs, um, running vests. Um, in those cases, it's usually water. It's a great way to start with extra water um, and use that weight. And a lot of times, I'll have the athlete um, use the the uh, a, a, a pouch that has uh, water in it. Um, that can be that, but that's form molded sort of in the back of their pack. Um, less a camelback because I don't want that big tube coming out and all that, but more, you know, you know, you put enough water in the back of your pack and you don't want it too sloshy either. 
um, it adds two to three to four pounds. And then as we progress and get stronger and have built some strength work and stamina and chassis integrity around the running and the bounding and the mountains and the hiking, um, we add a little bit more weight, maybe five to seven pounds. I tell you, you do the training with that and then you take it off, you fly, right? But also for this person getting ready for the 70 miler, a lot of hiking with extra weight. So I would build up to 90 minute to two hour hikes, steady, nonstop, equal energy, steady energy hiking, but gradually add 10 pounds to my pack. And then at times do with 20 pounds, you know, 20 pounds, two hours of hiking, um, in your running shoes, you got to strengthen your ankles, got to be ready for that too. Don't overdo that. But again, all these little ways to just make your lower body and your integrity stronger and capable of all the different scenarios it's going to go through for the event, right? There will be a lot of hiking in a 70 mile running event. Um, even if it's East Coast mountains, some of those East Coast mountain ranges are way choppier and steeper and less gradual with regards to than the um, West Coast mountains, than the Western, than the Rockies. There we have long, steady climbs, fire roads, stuff like that. Um, East Coast, man, some of that is really um, difficult, steep, rooted, um, and so forth. Now, Rock the Ridge, I know those trails. I've had a few athletes do it. Um, those are quite open. So there, too, again, um, an opportunity to steady run, and I would definitely plan on the weight-bearing aspect. Probably would say the longest individual run I would do for that um, in my training, I would build up to maybe doing a 35-miler, max a 40-miler, um, but most likely I would keep it around 32 to 35 miles, but I would do it twice. Why? Because the first time you just want to do it, you want to build up to that, but then you want to use that fitness. And after a couple of weeks of different distances and different running volume, I would redo that 32 miles, 34 miles. And that's mainly so that you gain confidence in sort of feeling like, wow, the first one really wrecked me and messed with me mentally. And it felt like such a long distance, but now that I've absorbed that and I've done other work in between. Um, the second time I did the 32 to 35 miler, I felt way more in control. It went by quicker. I recovered quicker. I was able to be more present and have steady energy throughout. Those are the little things where it's like, okay, that's awesome, right? That's where it's, um, you, you feel confident in your abilities. So 32 to 35, so that's half your distance. That's plenty right? You're, you're um, maybe going to do a 50k as a prep. Maybe you have the opportunity to run a 50k race as your prep. Um, what I would do there is also I would run it with my gear, right? Because again, what is my best desired outcome here for the two aspects? One, the 50k and two, the 70 mile event that I'm doing. Well, the 50k, like you said, you're not going to win these you're not looking for accolades or glory. You love the lifestyle. You love how it lets you feel. You love how it connects you with yourself and your body and your mind and a little bit of a tune out and tune in every day, right? Where I'm using that terminology a lot over the next months in the podcast because I really like the tuning in and tuning out and the radio analogy. 
um, with finding our body and our tune and our harmony and listening to that and clearly hearing it and being present and having um, the ability when we're tuning our body in to hear our conscious self, our higher consciousness, the self versus the ego. And the ego is the small mind. The self is the bigger present mind, higher consciousness um, that we want to tune into. It will make us better and stronger and so forth. Oops, there I go again, pulling off to the side. But anyway, so the 50K is about how am I doing this today in order to have it help me, make me stronger physically and mentally and somewhat spiritually, but those two components for my 70-mile day. So a 50K race would be perfect to actually apply your weight and your fueling and your hydration and your strategy, maybe not... Um, you know, drinking from streams with your water purification, that would be sort of weird in a 50K organized race with aid stations, but you can carry it all and sort of just go through all the motions and how you're doing. That's 31 miles. That's, again, almost halfway. Great check-in to see how you're doing and how you're progressing and what you still need to work on. The other thing that whether it's a 50K for a 50-mile or a 100-miler, one more for a 50-miler or a 70.3 for an Ironman or other type of check-in races, right? A 5K swim and prep for a 10K open water swim. Those are all also important to put far enough out there to highlight areas that you still want to work on, still want to improve, still want to narrow, narrow your focus on. Um, because going through a simulation is great in training, but it doesn't quite crystallize, clarify some of the blind spots that we might still have time if we schedule it properly to really iron out those details, really address those blind spots so that going into your A race, you have this calming aspect like I've been through all the motions, I know what I'm to expect, and now I can focus on executing my day and enjoying it, right? The the other piece that I probably also don't highlight enough when I talk about this earlier in this podcast, but in general, one of the nice things about executing a plan, a strategy, or having a vision for how your day is going to unfold, it allows you to enjoy your day too. Because you are working in a framework of something that you have envisioned and prepared for and know you're <clears throat> within a structure, it allows you to open your eyes and take in the scenery, the people, the joy, the fitness, the fresh air, nature, and all the experiences that come with these events. When you're not prepared or haven't envisioned it or don't have a good structure in place, you're constantly reacting to things that are happening. And you constantly have to think about fuel and hydration and pacing and people and racing and logistics and did I do this and do I have that and have I done enough of this and am I going too fast and oh my god what is that and there's a hill and there's a long climb and my legs are tired and I'm cramping and you know my legs are sore running downhill and all those things like that doesn't make it as enjoyable and as meaningful and as um, the way you envisioned it right, as you signed up for this race and in your training, whereas um, as if it, when you had prepared for it differently, 
where you can sort of exhale and go, I've done my work, I've got a good plan in place, I know what I'm doing, and now let me go out and enjoy this day. So, all right, 27 minutes to answer an email. (laughs) Uh, Just to close this out, did I answer everything? Um, How much more training time is involved? I wouldn't say that much more. Anything beyond 50 is pretty... um, pretty much the same as a 50 miler, you know, maybe in your simulation, you go a bit longer. Um, As you can see from above, I'm sensitive to the three legged stool and keeping them in balance. Yep. Plus, how much more difficult will it be as the race is unsupported? I don't think it should be more difficult. Because again, that's defined by how you prepared for it, and how you um, did your training for it. And then you can actually be independent of the course and in future trail races, knowing that you have the ability to do this, um, 80% of it on your own is a great, uh, tool and growth aspect for you too. Um, going into your next 50 miler, knowing that you ran 70 unsupported makes running. Okay. I just need to grab water and some calories, but most I have on me. I mean, that's just fun. Um, carry all my food, clothing for the entire set and no drop bags. Got that. We discussed that. That being said, I love a race with logistics and that is why I enjoy tries and ultras. Just thinking about the race, I've envisioned myself on the course, proper equipment to use, crossing the finish on a routine basis. Good. But now go a little bit further into that vision and think about what could go wrong and difficulties you might want to overcome and, um, you know, how it is going really well and how it is going really bad. And just sort of think through the scenarios that could unfold and then maybe practice them on a training day and then put them aside. You don't want to worry, but you want to have thought of them, thought them through and see how you'll feel and respond on that day. Um, In the end, I love the logistics and challenge of a race. Note, I'm not a fast racer, or I've never come close to winning a race. Training racing is therapy for me, and I which I tremendously enjoy. Cheapest therapy around, I tell my wife. My wife says I'm good at ultras because I can talk to myself for hours. (laughs) Um, But just going back, yes, it is therapy, again, because I believe subconsciously our brain and our soul and our higher consciousness is tapping on our shoulder and saying, you need time. We all need time for ourselves every day, every now and then, something longer, more than a, um, um, just an hour or two. Take me out into the woods for a couple of hours and take me on a long hike with no distractions, with no phone, with no music, just me and my thoughts. And after a while, things will unfold and open up and the portal will open up and that clarity and that tuning in will happen. Um, I believe that. I truly believe that most of us have something tapping on our shoulder, wanting us to connect with ourselves and that, that opening the portal to our deeper consciousness, our higher self. And with that in mind, ultra running, ultra endurance, ultra training is very, very powerful for that. And most of the time, we don't even know why we're pulled into this, but this sort of also highlights that a little bit. So, all right. Well, I think that'll be it. We are 30 minutes in, a good uh, hour and 20 minutes into this week's podcast. 
and um, I still have the introduction to do, which I, by the way, always do after I've done the podcast. I think I've talked about that before, but um, I, I record most everything and the things I want to talk about, and then I go back and do the intro because it allows me to sort of address <laughs> what I've talked about, rambled about on this podcast. All right. Well, have a great week, everybody. Thank you um, for listening. As always, I hope I hit some good training topics and details this week. I didn't go too far off into the philosophical <laughs> um, discussion and sort of um, brain dump that I sometimes do. And uh, yeah, some good, good stuff out there. And I hope you guys have a great week of training. It is Tuesday. I have knocked out a podcast pretty quickly here within 48 hours. I might do another one later this week. So uh, just to get through some of these emails and catch up on a variety of thoughts that I'm having lately and um, things that I want to talk about. So um, again, uh, thank you for listening and I will talk to you soon. <laughs>